You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he would greatly appreciate it if you would wake him up before you go-go. It's Mr. <laughs> Jeff McLaughlin. I can't remember any of the other lyrics to that song. How terrible is that? Oh my I god, think... I literally can't. It's like a complete blank, Bill. <laughs> Judabug. Yeah, it's oh, like that. That, I, well, yeah, okay, that, that, after you said that, yes, it's like somebody would have to come to me and be like, Jeff, we, we're going to read through these and then I'll remember them. But no, I, I it's a giant, it's a giant void, pop music void right there. Woof. That song has more hooks than a tackle box and you can't remember, you put the boom boom into my heart. Come on. No, I literally, until you said that, I'm like, no, if I had to write the lyrics down, otherwise I would lose out on a big cash prize or something. would be like, damn, <laughs> going home broke, right? Hey, want to hear an embarrassing story? Of course I do. Always. Maybe about a month ago, I'm trying to lose my COVID-19, so to speak. You know, we right. we all put on a little extra weight during the lockdowns that didn't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, didn't know what you meant by that. I'm like, oh, you had yeah. COVID? That's where my brain went. And then it started thinking yeah. about wake me up before you go, go. <laughs> As I was saying, we all put on a little bit of weight during the lockdowns. And that weight just didn't come off. And it's like, well, that's how I live now. Ah. But I, I'm not like that. So I want to get back down to, you know, my ideal weight. Right. So I have gone the low carb route. Ah, oh, I've now, done I, that once. Like August to November or December one okay. year. I'm, I don't want to say the keto route because I'm not really leaning heavy into the meat and cheese. Yeah. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm eating a lot more. You know, I have a salad. Every day for lunch, and that that's my lunch, you know, right. salad and a little else. It's not a meat salad. It's not like, no, oh, no, I'll no, make no. a salad. It's some chicken and some salami. and Just spring mix with some sriracha. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think of different things that I can have for breakfast, and, like, I don't want to eat eggs every single day. So I was like, okay, and I, I found almond flour, which is you know, very low in carbohydrates, flour. Right. And I, I've been experimenting, cooking with that. It's a little expensive. It's like $15 for a three-pound bag. Yeah, that's a lot but, expensive considering a five-pound five bag of flour is $3.29. So. Yeah, exactly. It's a, Like I said, it's a little bit more expensive, but I made pancakes with almond flour the other day, yeah. and they were magnificent. They were some of the best pancakes I've ever made on my own. They were really good. Now, are you trying yeah. to avoid gluten or are you trying to avoid uh, just carbs just Carbs in general? Yeah. Okay. I mean, because I, I eat a lot of, I know it's pronounced something different, but it's more fun to say because on my salad, I'll have Satan. Yes. When you say oh, it that way, it makes me think of goat leggings and, you know, doing yeah. the goat legging dance from the movie uh, Dragnet. But yes, Satan. Yeah. Yeah. Satan. Yeah. Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Yeah. Hail so I'll Satan. have. 
I'll have seitan with my salad sometimes. So and that's just plain straight up gluten. So I'm not really avoiding gluten. I'm just avoiding like the, the carbs. The cost differential is is huge though. Like if you buy, when well, you said what you're paying like 15 bucks for three pounds of almond flour, right? That's like yeah. five bucks a pound. And if you buy a yep. pound of seitan, you're going to pay 666 pennies for it, Bill. Yes, it's, uh, seitan is uh, pretty expensive <laughs> as well. The devil's in the details, the you know. The devil's in the details. Oh, you beat me. So let me just give this out to anybody that's listening. Something they don't tell you about going on a low-carb diet like this mm-hmm. is whenever you go, whenever your body engine switches over from burning carbohydrates to burning fats for energy source, which is the goal, there is a period of time where I'm working and I'm like, did I did I forget to wear deodorant today? And I'm literally just sitting there like being nonchalant about it and smelling my armpits yeah. and I'm fine, but I still am like smelling something. Yeah, whenever you switch, whenever you're, you're – quote unquote engines switch over for carbohydrates and proteins. Yeah, you give off a smell. Like yeah, I like you really invest in some sort of like cheapo axe body spray mm-hmm. or something because yeah, your pores just not like <laughs> like emitting an odor. Like I was I, like I did notice on the, the time that I was doing the it was pretty much like it wasn't all meat, but it was it was definitely super protein heavy. And carbs super light was when I would go to the gym and I would be in the midst of like the hardest part of weightlifting workout I was doing. I would smell like gravy. Yeah. That's what it would smell like. It smells like gravy. Like, oh, I smell like pot roast. (laughs) Great gravy. This is not. People are going to look at me funny or start throwing potatoes and carrots at me. So thankfully that has settled down already. (laughs) But yeah, the first couple of weeks I was like, it's my God, this is embarrassing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something else that is eliminated from the diet is uh, something I'm actually a big fan of. I had to eliminate honey, too many carbs, too many sugars. But that leads us to a today's very popular and always well-received trivia question. Jeff, how many eyes does a bee have? How many eyes does a bee have? Yep. It doesn't have any, but it's got two E's. (laughs) That's not my real guess. I will give you the answer at the end of the today's program in with the voice of David Attenborough. At any rate, this is the week beginning, March the 14th, and we will let you start this week. I'm in a good mood. I love it. Bill, do you like pie? Who doesn't like pie? Who doesn't like pie? Too many carbs, though. Is it made with almond flour? (laughs) It'd have to be, for you, it'd have to be meat pie, and it would be all almond flour. This pie will cost you $15. Right. We've got to double up on this one, so it... $30! (laughs) March 14th, 1592 is Ultimate Pie Day. On this day at 6.53 a.m., it is the largest correspondence between calendar dates and significant digits of pie since the introduction of the Julian calendar. And it's 3.1415926535. That's the Julian calendar date and time. So it worked for a guy who insisted we, like, add the Julian date and time to the end of our files as we were saving things incrementally. And I used to know how to calculate it. Now I'm like, go away. <laughs> Real quick, explain the difference between a Gregorian date and a Julian date. The, one is named after Pope Gregory and the other one's not. That's the best I can do at this point because I can't remember. Dude, I couldn't remember Wham lyrics five minutes ago. You can't remember that? <laughs> and then the second part of our twofer is in 2019, Google announces that its employee, a woman named Emma Haruka Iwao, Japanese employee has broken the world record for calculating pi to 31.4 trillion digits on Pi Day. She did it 
that was when the calculation stopped, and it had taken 24 preceding days and Pi Day, and she did it over the Google Cloud with 121 computers. That's a lot of digits. There's a lot. That's a lot of zeros. I wonder, as a Google employee. Well, it's actually not really all that many zeros. Right? <laughs> I'm going to suggest it's like I can imagine her supervisor like uh, Emma. What are you working on? Are you working on like the cloud features that we talked about in the stand up meeting we had yesterday where we're going to add buttons to the thing and it's going to find the logarithm that does the she says, no, I'm, ca- I'm calculating <laughs> pi to thirty one point four trillion numbers. Um, this is going to reflect on your annual review. <laughs> Yeah, it's a world record. 31.4 trillion digits. I'm pretty sure you could fake that. I am the 0.00001% person that graduated from high school that actually does use trigonometry in their job. So. Yes, you're like the ringer. If I ever have a math question, <laughs> you're the guy I got to come to. I say, Bill. And you say, yes, Jeff. And I say, I have a math question for you. And you go, bring it on. I know all yep. about rational and rational numbers. And I'm saying, okay, you ready? And I say, it's wake me up before <laughs> you... Go, go. Are there any more goes in that song? And you go, no, there's just two. And that's the end of my math question. And I thought I said, Andrew originally. All right. So trigonometry, the trig is, ba- is because it's based on triangles. Right. Triangles have three sides. And that leads us to our next day. March the 15th, 1977, American sitcom Three's Company debuts. Oh, speaking of irrational numbers. Yeah. Right? Uh, Three? Very, yeah. very, very, very controversial at its time, much like All in the Family, was based on a British sitcom called Man About the House. The premise was there was these two girls that their roommate had moved out, so they get a third roommate, but this roommate is a boy, and you can't have two girls and a boy living together. It's uh, 1977 in America, anyway. Uh, the audience was, was, were teenagers in 1947. Yeah, exactly. So they tell the landlord, no, don't worry about it. No funny business is going on because he's gay, but he wasn't gay. And that's the whole premise of the show. This feels like it was it was testing the waters for another problematic sitcom called Bosom Buddies. Remember that one where the two guys yes, couldn't find a place to live? So they, they dressed in drag and moved into an all woman's apartment building. Right. That was uh, that was our friend Tom Hanks in that show. Yeah, and Peter Scolari. Yeah. So Three's Company was a very, very, very popular sitcom. It lasted, I think, seven seasons. The cast rotated around quite a bit. The Ropers were the original landlords. Well, they were insanely popular characters, and the network wanted to give them their own spinoff. And they were like, well, I mean, we kind of like being on this show, and this show pays a lot of money. So the network said, tell you what, we'll give you your own show. If it doesn't work, you know, you can come back to Three's Company. So that's what they did, and then it didn't work. When they wanted to come back to Three's Company, they were like, yeah, uh, you ran out the clock. There was a... Uh, you know, a clause in the contract that said you could come back to the show, you know, if you stayed out for X amount of time. And it was literally with like two weeks out of the contract. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they got screwed. Oh, well, it sucks yeah. for them. I remember that show being on, yep. but that's all I remember. And it wasn't wow. on long, so. You know what you missed out on, though? Because I can't think of the actor's name. Wake me up before you go-go. You'll remember, though, because you're Andrew better Ridgely. at this stuff than I am. No, uh, uh, the father on Arrested Development. Jeffrey Tambor. Jeffrey Tambor was on the Ropers. He lived in the apartment next door. 
I still know See. none of the lyrics to that song. <laughs> I don't know that I ever saw it other than like an advertisement for it, like the spinoff show you've all been waiting for. The Ropers, and it's on at 9.30, which was too late for me to stay up when that show was on in 1977, or 78, or whatever year it was. I'm sure my parents were like, hey, this is great. Ha 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 ha. Go to bed. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it was for me. Comedy definitely came a long way, though. I mean, adult sitcoms that I wasn't allowed to watch as a kid, like WKRP in Cincinnati, because it was on late after my bedtime, and this one, like, I again, I didn't have a lot of access to those, because my parents were like, oh, the Muppet Show's over. Bedtime for you, boyo. So, look at that. Six thirty. News is done. Time to go to bed. Time to go to bed. Right. It's the sun's almost down now. When I think of seventies sitcoms, we talked before the show, and you're like, "Yeah, this was part of the same block that was like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley." I remember an episode of Happy Days with we talked about the shark jumping episode, which is the only one anybody seems to remember. I also remember the one yeah. where Hawaii became a state. I don't remember which episode that was. But that might be the same episode, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. pick it out of a hat unless it was called, like, the Hawaii episode or, you know, Fonzie learns the hula or some other stupid thing. All right, so moving on to the next day. What do we got for the 16th? March 16th, 1867. The first publication of an article by a guy named Joseph Lister. Remember that name. Uh, outlining the discovery of antiseptic surgery in The Lancet. So why do you think the name Lister is important to antiseptic surgery? Because uh, he wrote that song Kyrie Laysen by Lister Lister. <laughs> no, the good guess, though. He's the Lister that's part of the name Listerine, which is the antiseptic. It's currently an antiseptic mouthwash with alcohol in it. But originally, yes. his formulation was a dilution of stearic acid that he would mist oh. over the body in the operating theater before they performed the most scientifically uh, important medicine of the 1800s which was cutting stuff off headache cutting stuff off got a little bit of a limp there it's cutting stuff off kicked by a horse Oops, stuff's getting cut off tennis elbow not anymore <laughs> cut that sucker right cut, off cut that stuff that's a clear case of dry rod cut off that limb um, yeah so george michael went down there to get andrew Ridgely removed right exactly you didn't go to the doctor so much to get cured as you did to get pruned <laughs> Um, up until 1867, you also typically died. You'd get gas gangrene, yeah. and then you'd die like two or three months later, if if even that long. Yeah, because like every piece of bacteria in the room was like, oop, smoogus board, it just jumped on in. All right. Yeah, this is before they realized that like we have to wash the saw between this guy's <laughs> arm and that guy's leg. Like, why? The leg doesn't care, you know? And it's like, yeah, dude, you got to wash the saw. So figuring out the sort of basic antiseptic stuff was really important to improving the lives of people who had to receive surgery, battlefield surgery and surgery in operating theaters and, and et cetera. It was one of the earliest uh, examples of how uh, hygiene practices could improve the life of the people whose services they were used to, doctors were able to, to treat. <laughs> and eventually they said, hey, maybe we don't have to cut this stuff off. Right. Well, yeah, once you learn how to do things like, you know, what's the penicillin? So you're saying that bacteria, if I eat the bacteria, that I'm not going to get the cholera? Huh. I don't know. Maybe you should just cut my arm off. Because <laughs> try that first. That's like, that's how we used to do things. So anyway, anyway, and the, surgery. And, uh, yeah, and up until that point, up until that point, they were just cutting the mold right off the bread. Oh, yeah, I can eat the rest <laughs> of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, dude, I don't eat the moldy bread. I cut it off. Take off my foot. It's totally fine. I can walk on the other one. <laughs> All right, so moving on to the 17th, March the 17th, 1901. At a show in Paris, 
71 Vincent Van Gogh paintings cause a sensation. He had died like a, 11 years prior. Yeah. And, you know, true to form, people aren't famous until after they die. Vincent Van Gogh could, you know, while he was alive, could barely get himself arrested. But after he died, yeah, 71 paintings are on display over in Gay Paris. And it was like a Who concert. And everybody was just... uh scrambling in to go see them, yep. I think it was his brother who exhibited them. I'm not sure if it's his older or younger brother, but I think that was who ultimately took his art estate over when he when he died. After he died. Imagine if somebody had a top hat on. That would have been nuts. <laughs> or a lady with pants on. <laughs> it's interesting to see the way that something that new, like his paintings were like the meet the Beatles of art at that time. <laughs> People are like, I have to see this. I have to see this star. I've never seen anything like it before in my entire life. It's astonishing. It's like stars. and They swirl around. Paint's so thick. You know, and he was the, kind of yeah. the first guy that really did that style. Oh. Yeah, because he couldn't afford brushes. I got this palette knife and a bunch of heroin. Uh, eating the egg tempera, right? Getting yeah. lead poisoning. I think they have two of his works at the Courier Museum up here in Manchester. Yeah. I know that they have one on exhibit all the time, which I love to look at. Yeah, his stuff is very interesting. So yeah, I've I've always liked Van Gogh. My my father, I know I've told this story before. I still have it to this day. My father had this book of art of paintings and stuff like that, and I used to like to look at the Van Goghs and stuff. I went up to the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, a couple of times, and Starry Night is on display over there. That is really, really something to see in person where you can get up kind of close to it before the security guard yells at you like I did. Kind of like move your head around just to see like the crinkles of the paint because that paint is really, really thick over there. And just knowing, just knowing that if you like, if you wanted to like ruin the world, you know, if you could get to it, like to the, the, the surface of it beyond the glass and stuck like a toothpick in there, there's probably still wet paint underneath. Yeah, it's like uh, cake frosting. Yeah, yeah. I, have you have you gone to see the, like the inside the Van Gogh paintings exhibit that travels around where they project different paintings like into a into a space? I don't want to say it's a theater, but it's no. I know what you're talking about. I've seen pictures that my friends went to see it. They were doing it down in Providence for a little bit back uh, either at the beginning of the year or at the end of last year. I would have liked to have seen that, but I haven't really 100% got back into my social. Circles, working on it, but hopefully someday. <laughs> well, let me close out this day with this. Like, let's wake me up before you Van Gogh go. Oh, you son of a bitch! <laughs> March eighteenth, two thousand two. Hey ho, let's go go. What do you got for the eighteenth? March eighteenth, two thousand two. Everyone's favorite band, the Ramones, are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I think that's we should append that and say the three surviving members of the Ramones. Currently, who I think were battling cancer, some of them were still battling cancer at that point, were inducted into no, the Rock and Roll. they were all alive at that point. Were they all alive in 2002? Yep. Okay. Yep. Dee Dee was the first one to die. I went back and watched the the induction not even all that long ago. Mm. And man, you couldn't have made Dee Dee Ramon any happier that day of the Ramones getting to, in, inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Dee Dee was bouncing off the walls. He was super happy. I mean, he was the principal songwriter, yeah. you know? So, of course, he's going to be happy about that. Joey was very happy because Joey loved being a Ramon. Right. Tommy was like, whatever, <laughs> you know. And Johnny was, 
Johnny was always very stoic anyway. But Dee Dee was literally bouncing off the walls. He was super happy. And unfortunately, he died of an overdose. Like, I don't know. It wasn't even three months later, I don't think. I remember in the, the segment in End of the Century, he was talking about it was like before the induction ceremony where he was he was filmed and he's like yeah this is amazing i can't believe you know we did this and who would have thought blah 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 and, and after that it was like did you remove he's dead it's like it wasn't even five minutes from one shot to the other right with yeah a stop in the uh, middle of him like waving at people from behind the podium at the rock and roll hall of fame yeah Didi was the first to go then uh he was 50 yeah. then joey was 50 and then Johnny went not long after that. Johnny was 55. And then Tommy was the last one of the Ramones from the first album. He was the last one to go. And yeah, and that was a couple of years ago. It's so weird to think that like they're all gone. And yet most of the Rolling Stones are still here. You know? Right. Yep. I'm not going to argue with you at all. That is absolutely yeah. true. It's, yeah, it's very weird to get your head around. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, coming up on the 19th, March the 19th, 2016, Batman versus, I'm saying versus, Batman versus Superman comes out. All right, you're the literary guy. Can you explain to me, is there a difference between V and VS as the abbreviation for versus? There is a difference. The difference is relatively subtle, though. Are you ready? I'm ready. V has no S after it, and VS does. Okay. So people say Batman v Superman. It's like, no, it's versus. The, there is no V word. It's Batman versus Superman, but everybody says V. Look, I'm a history guy, yep. irrespective of my ability to remember song lyrics. So I view that as Batman five Superman. Oh, how, how Roman of you. <laughs> how Roman of me. Did you, it's the Ides of March, Superman. Stab that man. You know, so. Did you like Batman versus Superman? I liked about half of Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice, and I was really looking forward to seeing it. I thought the trailer was awesome. I thought the best part of that film was Ben Affleck as Batman. I'm not going to lie. He's probably my he was surprisingly good. favorite yep. Batman in, of all the cinematic Batmans. Really? Um, yeah. That's bold. That's you know, a bold statement. I, you know what? He really carried that well, As even though he doesn't particularly like the role for himself. Yeah. I thought he did a wonderful job. When I went to see that in the theater with my brother, now my brother is a Batman aficionado. Yes. As a matter of fact, he wasn't born on the same day <laughs> that the Batman television series came out. Holy missed up dates, Batman. Holy Julian calendar, Batman. Right. Uh, anyway, we went to see that in the theater and I remember my brother leaning over to me and saying, if I see Batman fire one more gun, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. <laughs> he definitely, that's the only time in uh, Batman's visual representation, other than uh, one other time where he's used a firearm to uh, shoot at somebody. And the other time was in the very first episode of uh, Batman Beyond. Uh, I thought it was okay. I, there was a lot of hate behind that movie, but I think that was one of those movies where there was no way it was going to live up to anybody's expectations. Like me being the horror guy, the Jason versus Freddy movie. You know, we all were champing at the bit for years for that movie to come out. And whenever it came out, I was like, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then again, the majority of all of the movies in those series aren't that good. Right. I love them all. I will sit here and intellectualize the merits of of Friday the 13th Part 5, which is the one without Jason that everybody pisses all over. Right. you know, And I will pick it apart like fine cinema. 
uh, because you know I like horror movies and stuff like that. But that movie, Jason versus Freddy, there was no way it was going to live up to anybody's hype. And I think this movie suffered the same kind of consequences. I thought it was fine. Tried to do a whole bunch of things at once. And it didn't do any of them really well. So it tried to build a universe and introduce characters, unlike Marvel, which took its time by introducing individual characters in individual movies and then sort of sticking them together. Right? right? They did it the dumb way. They're like, hey, let's put everybody in a movie. Everybody knows who Batman is. He doesn't need an origin story again. Um, yeah, we want this money now. We'll the origin stories later once everybody's <laughs> thrilled. It's, this is going to be great. It also tried to do some fan service. It tried yeah. to be super duper action-y, so you've got, like, by the end of the movie, they're throwing every single possible DC Comics anything they can at the screen to try and just make one person freaking happy, and nobody was. Right. And they paid homage to some of the better source material, even though they did it in a way that was really clumsy, like the scene where Batman and Superman fight, the yeah. literal fist fight that they have in the sort of darkened alley with Batman and special armor that he's made that allows him to sort of go toe-to-toe for a few minutes with, with Superman is drawn directly from Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, which is the best Batman story I think I've ever read. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was really looking forward to seeing that. That part was great until the end of it, when they both realized that their mothers were named Martha. And at that point, I was like, Ian, please kill me with the popcorn bag. Just put it over (laughs) my head and hold my neck until I die. That's your bonding moment, that? Right, exactly. I mean, we've known each other for, you know, 30-plus years, and we only figured out a couple of months ago, I think... That your brother and my brother have the same birthday, and we will, and we were like, "Oh, cool! What do we got for the next day?" Right. <laughs> um, yes. I thought the Doomsday thing. I was happy that they did the Doom Doomsday story, but I thought it was a little shoehorned in. Like the whole end of the movie was shoehorned in with Lex. I mean, if you're gonna make Lex Luthor the villain, he's gotta be villainous like right from the beginning and be manipulating everything from the very beginning. He can't be the the guy in the last ten minutes who's like. Oh, by the way, I've got Zod's body and there's a bunch of sludge. Watch. Blah! Doomsday. <laughs> that doesn't work. The part of Batman v Superman that they also tried to pull it into... I'm sorry, Batman what Superman? Batman 5 Superman. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of played a little bit into the death of Superman storyline by bringing Doomsday in. Admittedly, Doomsday's been in like a million comics since then. Yes. But, like the beauty of Doomsday is that no one knew what the heck Doomsday was. And he... Right pretty much killed the Justice League on his way into Metropolis. Superman realized how much of a fight he was in not long after that fight started and ultimately, you know, died fist for fist fighting Doomsday to the point where they were both dead. And they kind of tried to do some of that at the end of Batman 5 Superman, but it just didn't work good. All right, and let's wrap up the week on the 20th. Hey, speaking of movies that crash and burn like the Hindenburg, what do you do when if you're a studio that has $180 million to spend or more and you think, I know exactly what the world is going to want to see. They're going to want to see us adapt a science fiction story that's 117 years old and in the public domain. (laughs) (laughs) So Disney released John Carter in 2012. So 2012, March 20th, 2012. Oh my God. John Carter comes out and crashes. No, I remember that coming out. I remember seeing all the commercials for it, and I was like, is this an intellectual property? Because I don't know anything about it. Yeah, it bombed hard. It it came and went so fast, it messed up my hair. Yeah. I'm convinced that that's one of the reason that they made that. Now, hear me out. This may not be the truth, but this is how I imagine this, this went down. So... Their executives for Disney are all around a big table. They're planning out their year's thing, like they do every year. They've got the Pixar guys who are like, we're going to do one about an animatronic crockpot that dispenses flowers. And people are like, that sounds like an Oscar winner. Make sure it's got songs in it. 
right? And then there's another one's like, we're going to remake the Beauty and the Beast cartoon with live action and then half CGI. It's going to suck, but it's only going to cost like $26 million and we're going to sell 9 million videos of it. Great. That's fantastic. And then somebody brings out a partially thawed head of Walt Disney and they go, Walt, it's this year. What do, what do we do this year? And he goes, John Carter. And they go, great. And they dump a bunch of ice in and they put him back in the freezer. Because all he could remember is like Tarzan was cool when he was a kid. John Carter is cool. And the same writer, Edgar Rice Burroughs, for this set of stories. I don't know why this movie was made. I don't know what was expected of it. It's almost a superhero That's... movie. It's kind of a fantasy hack and slash movie. It's kind of a science fiction movie. It's kind of a Western. It's kind of terrible. It's one of those things like there was that other bomb movie that you said you saw in the theater and you have like the poster for it too. The City of a Thousand. (laughs) Valerian. City of a Thousand Planets. Yeah. Yeah. They were giving out the merchandise from that movie on day one. Usually Disney picks properties that people are already familiar with. You know, like Princess and the Frog, Back in the Day, Cinderella, Snow White, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think they just kind of like ran out of intellectual properties. I mean, The City of a Thousand Planets is based on a comic book, but it's not like I never heard of it until the movie came out. And right. I didn't even know it was a comic book until you were telling me about it. it. It wasn't like an overly popular thing. So this John Carter, once again, you said it's in the public domain, which means it's not making money anymore. Right. It was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. That's the guy that wrote Tarzan and At the Earth's Core. I mean, this right. story was written like 1890. The John Carter of Mars stories, which that particular film is based on the first book called The Princess of Mars, which is what the, the film was supposed to be called. Right. See, there's the princess angle that Disney likes to sort of capitalize on. But they got cold feet in production. They're like, we can't call this The Princess of Mars. No one's going to go see this. Or the, All the people that are going to bring their little daughters in their princess dresses to this movie are not, not going to sit through this two and a half hour CGI filled night, nightmare space western. <laughs> They're going to burn us at the stake. So they changed the name to John Carter, which made everybody confused because it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, nobody went to see it except me. I think I was the only person in the United States that saw it on its opening day. And my first thought was like, well, that was a movie. <laughs> Out of all the movies I've ever seen, that was the most recent. And it wasn't terrible. I mean, I like John Carter's stories. I like the Edgar Rice Burroughs books. It doesn't uh, mean I need to see a movie about it. It made money, but not really. The estimated budget was $250 million. And its gross revenue was $284 million. So after taxes, they probably split like 35 bucks. you know. This week's episode of Twibbly is brought to you by Necessary Chances by Norman Duchesneau and published through Austin McCauley. Necessary Chances is a collection of 50-plus stories of actual events told exactly how they happened to the author. The stories span from more than 30 years in the field of law enforcement. As often as possible, the stories are told in a humorous manner because, well, we all deserve a laugh, don't we? The author hopes that this book might inspire one good man or woman to take up the shield someday. In today's world of miscommunication and misunderstanding, the author hopes that somehow, somewhere, a dialogue might open that wasn't there before. Necessary Chances has received 5 out of 5 star reviews on Amazon and Austin McCulley. Once again, thank you to Necessary Chances for sponsoring this week's episode. Available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and through Austin McCulley Publishing. Links will be in the show notes. All right, let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. March the 14th, 1948, American comedic actor Billy Crystal. Ah. 
Billy Crystal got his start on my favorite sitcom, or one of my favorite sitcoms, probably number two favorite sitcom. He started on Soap. He played Jody Dallas, which was actually the first openly gay character on network television. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, on primetime television, yeah. He's got a comedy album that came out in 1985 mm-hmm. based on his stand-up. But yep. There's a couple of songs on there because he was on Saturday Night Live at the time. Right. That album is just super, super, super funny. And this is just a great fun fact about Billy Crystal. For his 60th birthday, right, yep. he signed a contract with the New York Yankees because he's a huge baseball fan. He played in a spring training game, and then they fired him the next day. <laughs> nice. But yeah, he like signed this like joke contract just so he could say that he played for the New York Yankees. That was like his birthday present. Yeah, that's funny. That's fun. Yeah, he's a fun guy. I like I like Billy Crystal. Yeah, he made some made some decent movies. I mean, he even did the action movie thing for a little while in the eighties with Running Scared. Right? Remember that movie? Oh yeah, that's right. Gregory yep. Hines. Yeah, it's a good film. I remember the first time I remember him not on Saturday Night Live, but in a film was when he was the mime character who was serving food in Spinal Tap. It was him as the mime, Oh my god, the mime, you're absolutely mime right. supervisor to uh, Dana Carvey. And he goes, remember, right. mime is money. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, that's what I remember from Billy Crystal. Yep, and then, of course, millennials will love him forever from The Princess Bride. And have fun storming the castle. Yeah. Yes, most people do love that film. All right, moving on to the 15th. March 15th, 1963. Brett Michaels. Brett Michaels, the lead vocalist for Poison, born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The reason I bring up good old Brett Michaels today is I, I found myself thinking about hair metal and going back and listening to some hair metal bands from that were really popular in the 1980s, like Motley Crue and Poison and Skid Row and some others. Of all of them, at least Brett Michaels either stays out of the limelight or is kind of okay when he plays live. Vince Bloody Neal, on the other hand, is a disaster. <laughs> like, I don't know whether to feel bad or just cackle when I watch videos of him mangling <laughs> Motley Crue songs on his solo tour and just embarrassing the ever-loving blue-eyed Jeebus out of his backing band. Yeah, there's a meme floating around that's like comparing him to the Bumble from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he says, maybe someone should pull all of his teeth out and he'll stop. <laughs> I know Molly Crew is supposed to do a stadium tour, and I can imagine Mick Mars is like, absolutely not. No No, part way. of the contract is that uh, Vince Neil has to lose weight yeah. in its contract. Yeah. Yes. Go back to Brett Michaels for a bit. Yep. I forget which award show it was on, but they had performed. And as he was walking off the stage, the like the metal curtain was like coming down. Yeah. And he dinged his head on it and knocked himself out. I think he could cuss himself too. <laughs> if you can yeah. find a video of it, it's funny. It's, in retrospect, it's funny. When it happened, it was like, ooh, ooh he's gonna get decapitated. But- yeah, but now that you know he's alive and he didn't die, it's like... Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I will go back and say this. Like I, I had a lot of disdain for Poison when they were popular. All the, all the bands that played that style of music, they and like Britney Fox were my least favorites. I did not like them at all. And in going back and listening to their first record a little bit, eh, maybe I was a little harder on them than I needed to be. Yeah, in, they're fun. The they're fine. They're, they're a lot of fun. There's a place in the world for high-energy rock and roll that doesn't take itself super seriously. And maybe you had to live through the, the 90s and 2000s to understand that. All right, moving on to the 16th. March the 16th, 1926. American comedian and enormously popular in France, Jerry Lewis. Yes. Who up until probably 1988, 
I thought was a member of the Beastie Boys. But that's another story for another time. <laughs> I was looking at the birthday list and I was like, Jerry Lee Lewis? No. There's no Lee. It's just Jerry Lewis. <laughs> yeah, Jerry Lewis. <laughs> friend of Dean Martin. Oh, okay. Yeah, at one, at one time. Yeah. At one time, one time friend of... Actually, you know what? Jerry Lewis is still pretty funny. His movies, especially his weird later ones, are kind of okay. They're they're pretty funny. There's, the, there's one that he made right around 1980 that I saw in the cinema with my dad, and I remember cackling like an idiot at it. I remember it happening, and, yeah. And it was a, my dad's like, oh, he's funny. Like, Cinderella was funny. And it was an older style of, like, half physical and half slapstick comedy that I... That just really gelled with me when I was like 10. I would watch a little bit every year of him doing the muscular dystrophy, the telethon, where they raised thousands upon thousands yes. of dollars for muscular dystrophy. So, uh, interesting guy. Strange, strange guy, but a good guy. Funny guy. I don't know. He's the weird guy that's traversed yeah. like five decades of comedy and still managed to be funny right up until he kind of died. Yeah, he died uh, in 2017 at the age of 91. Um yeah, God love him. He did a lot of work, especially with those telethons. That was like such a a part of Americana. That's something that everybody looked you know looked forward to. I remembered one whenever they said they weren't going to do it anymore. It was like everybody was sad. It was like yeah, well nobody's watching. It. Well, there was it was weird. Like the last couple of years too, you'd watch and be like, are they going to wheel Jerry Lewis out because he's like eighty eight years old or eighty six years old? But he would like simulcast from his house, and he still was he was still funny and still looked like right. sprightly and lively. All right, uh, moving on to the 17th. March 17th, 1951. Kurt Russell, child actor who became an adult actor, and went from Disney kids' films to The Thing, uh, among other things. And it's what was he? What was he as a kid actor? As a kid actor, he was on yeah. a bunch of Disney shows. He was, was in he? a movie called Yep. He was in a movie called The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. He was the voice narrator for the Walt Disney World's thing called Dad, Can I Borrow the Car? Oh, that I remember, yes. I think he was in, like, The Shaggy Dog. He was in a bunch of Disney movies when he was a little kid and made his first adult, I'm saying adult with air quotes, but it's his first R-rated film when he made used cars in 1977 or 78. Generation X is going to know him primarily from, like, Big Trouble in Little China and and The Thing. But I think the, the millennials and the younger generation are going to know him as Ego, the Living Planet from right. the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, right. Well, Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy, Galaxy Volume Two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was also in The Hateful Eight most recently, which was long, <laughs> and, and and made me cold when I was watching it because it's cold. It's a cold-looking movie. He just did the Santa Claus thing that was on Netflix. Oh, the Christmas Chronicles. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the one. Right. All right. So speaking of cars, March the eighteenth, eighteen fifty-eight is the birthday of Rudolph Diesel. Do you know who that is, Jeff? I'm going to guess you're going to tell me it's like a wrestler. I'm waiting for you to say, like, Rudolph <laughs> Diesel, who suplexed Phineas J. Strongman in the first international intercontinental bout in Madison Square Garden right after they showed the 25-cent leopard. No, there was a wrestler named Diesel. That's pretty funny. If this guy's going to take on anybody, he's going to take on Captain Kerosene. Oh. Because uh, Rudolph Diesel is the inventor of the diesel engine. Oh, okay. Oh, that's cool. That makes way more sense. It's not as fun <laughs> as what I was thinking, but it's, it makes way more sense. Uh, did you know, here's a trivia question for you, that the yeah. rate at which an idling diesel engine purrs is the exact same frequency that a cat purrs. Really? Coincidence or? Coincidence? I think not. Or, or, uh, or engineering marvel. Only you can tell. And they said that a cat's purring is like, has some sort of like healing factor. 
So people who drive diesels just like live forever until they it choke. Must to death. be. All the truck drivers I know are very old, so it makes sense. What do you do all day? I sit in a big purring truck. <laughs> Chase a ball of yarn around. Yes, in an eighteen wheeler. <laughs> Run. <laughs> Moving on, March nineteenth, nineteen twenty eight. American-Irish actor named Patrick McGowan, whose name you may not recognize. And I don't. Before I tell you, I give you the clue that will tell you who Patrick McGowan is. I'll tell you, like Kurt Russell, he starred in the Disney, like the first like Disney superhero show. I don't know if you remember the TV show Scarecrow, which was like... No, I remember Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Well, nope. This was like uh, set in colonial New England, and there was a landowner who, who went off and fought the British as a scarecrow. That was his like moniker, and he was like a, like a Zorro-type character. That was okay. Patrick McGowan. He also was number six in The Prisoner. So if you don't know the show, British iconic British TV show. And I don't. You know him from the song that Iron Maiden put on their iconic album, uh, The Number of the Beast, in preceding the song The Prisoner. Oh. Right? We want information. Yeah. Yes. Who is number one? Yeah, uh, that's him, Patrick McGowan, and the story behind so, them. So no, he's getting not, that, Yeah, so he's the one that says, "I am not a number. I am a free man." Okay, that is him. There's a story that Iron Maiden were writing the Prisoner, yep. recording the song, and they're like, "What are we gonna do? We gotta, we gotta ask." So I don't know if it was Steve Harris. Either Steve Harris called Patrick McGowan's agent and got his number, or he called him directly. It, he's like, "I dialed the number and he answered the phone. This is Patrick McGowan." And I describe what we're trying to do, and I describe the song, and I say, is it okay if we use this clip in the beginning of the song? And he said this. This is how he described it. He goes, do it. And he hung the phone off, and that was how they got permission to use that clip, because he owned the rights to the show. Oh, right. All the rights to the show. Do, do it. it. And, yeah, awesome. And then wrapping up the birthdays, March the 20th, 1928, a man by the name of Fred, but we just knew him as Mr. Rogers. Oh, I grew yeah. up watching that guy. Yeah, I think everybody in Generation X, whether they like to admit it or not, grew up watching Mr. Rogers. Beloved now, there was you know a time where he was a bit of a punchline because he was so gentle and quiet. But I think now that Generation X is all grown up, we can look back very fondly at just what an absolute national treasure Mr. Rogers was. Definitely had a commitment to, like, children's education and quality television for children. And yeah. I know he was went and spoke in front of the Senate or something. I think it was the Senate. Yeah, in front of Congress, right. And, and in front of Congress and secured funding for PBS. That's a masterpiece to watch, too. Because he just very, you know, in true Mr. Rogers fashion, put his case forth saying, you know, if you cut funding to public television you're cutting funding to a lot of children's programming and children's educational programming and he just makes his case very quietly very politely the judge says you have won me over and they got the grant yeah it's it's a beautiful piece to watch yeah they don't make people like him anymore i don't think no. maybe they do but they don't have the platform that he had he came at just the right time in just the right place right started on like on public television, and I think that show was out of Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, it could be. Yep. I'll tell you that Lady Elaine was a nightmare. But <laughs> yeah, there were you know there was Lady Elaine was a puppet. There were some humans that lived in the neighborhood too. The the neighborhood. It's where Mr. McFeely, the mailman. No. No. Yes, yeah. McFeely. Mr. McFeely. Yeah, speedy delivery. Yes. Yep. Yes, I'm thinking of I get him mixed with Mr. Green Jeans from the other children's show that I grew up watching, which was Captain Kangaroo. Right. One of the other neighbors that I remember is Lady Aberlin. And she was like a younger woman who was friends with 
Fred Rogers. And uh-huh. she was also, she played a nun in the movie Dogma. I know that Kevin Smith, because I guess he knew her, he, he wanted her to have a part because he grew up watching Mr. Rogers as well. I remember seeing her in the cinema being like, that looks like Lady Avalon from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Fred Rogers, he was the voice of all the puppets on the show, and he also wrote, you know, the songs that he would sing on the show. Yep. And fun bit, fun bit about that is every sweater, all those cardigan sweaters that he wore throughout mm-hmm. the series, they were all knitted by his mom. Oh. Fun theme song. I I can't I can't say anything bad about it, but I can't say something bad about the worst song ever. All right, Jeff. I uh, curse the very ground you walk on because of today. <laughs> yeah, it's, I I earned that curse. So what have you done? What, what have, have you done? done to me this week? This week, Bill, I want to talk with you about the phenomena of new metal. Remember new yeah, metal, Bill. The next big uh, thing in 1999-ish. As a wrestling fan, there is one standard that you can live by. Is anything that starts with the word new yeah. is going to be terrible and is going to fail. The, and like the new Blackjacks, the new Heart Foundation, the new whatever. Anything that had the new in front of it always failed terribly. And new metal is no exception. No exception. It's like new Coke. Except it's it's yes. it, compounding the badness is not just that it's new, but it's spelled N-U. New. So uh, what's our example for, because we're going to narrow it down to one song. What's our example? Yes. Today's offering to celebrate the terribleness of new metal is Youth of the Nation by surprisingly still robust and touring P.O.D., which stands for Payment on Death. Oh, that's romantic. Yes, the song is from 2000. It's from their second record. They'd already won a couple Grammy nominations by the time this terrible song came out. I bring this up today because, and this is going to sound terrible and trite, but I hear this freaking song every single time I go to the gym. And it's not on at a time where I can have my headphones on and listen to something that isn't terrible. It's on when I'm coming out of the shower and I'm wrapped (laughs) in a towel. And I have to hear this continuous caterwauling terrible chorus we are we are the youth of the nation repeated endlessly okay so here i am you know like okay we're gonna do uh pod the youth of the nation as our song this week and i was like i don't know that song. And then yes, I, I listened I listen to it. Remember, I keep on bringing up this guy that I used to work with, Destined to be a Townie. He used to sing this song around the shop, but he never got any further than the We Are, We Are part. Like, he didn't even get to the Youth of the Nation part. He just, like, kept on doing the We Are, We Are part. That hook, you know? I'm going to guess that most people still sing it and they sing it like, We Are, We Are, Euthanasia. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes me wish I was having Euthanasia when this song is on. So I'm looking up the wiki because I don't know. I don't know this band. New metal is not my genre. I don't listen to a lot of aggressive music. New metal kind of supposes itself with anger. And these guys were a Christian band. And it's like, I don't know what you're so angry about. I thought that was supposed to be a joyous thing. So I'm looking at the lyrics as I'm listening to this song for what I thought was my first time. And I'm reading along with the lyrics, and I think the reason why they're a Christian or considered a Christian band 
is because I couldn't help but go, Jesus Christ, when I read the lyrics, these things are apocalyptic. Yeah, this falls into the song theme of kids who die for what seems like no reason, but there's probably a reason, so... As I was listening to this for the 11 millionth time in advance of the show, mm-hmm. it made me think of, like, four other songs. Just thematically, not even They're musically. They're all by Linkin Park, right? They're all by Linkin Park, no. <laughs> it made, made me think of People Who Died by the Jim Carroll Band, right? Yep. It made me think of Pepper, even though that's almost surrealism compared to this song by the Butthole Surfers. Yep. Right. What it's like by Everlast, which I think came out the same year as this song. Remember that song? Uh, no. Janie works down to the thing with whatever it is. And she's good at. Well, I can't remember the lyrics. Oh, but Jesus it's like, Christ! Yeah. It's all like bad things happening to people who are in bad situations type songs, and this is one of those same songs. Yep. And I thought to myself, like, man, the '90s sucked. And the, so, so did the early 2000s, because music was so friggin' depressing. Like, you couldn't get away from it, no matter where you went. The thing with the people who died, and, and even Pepper, but more so with people who died, is even though the, the lyrics to the song are pretty dark, the beat of the song and the up-tempo of it, this juxtaposition of, you know, up-tempo with dark lyrics... It's almost comical where this song has got that, oh my God, all the, not all new metal was like a hybrid of rap and metal, but a lot of it was like Limp Bizkit and Linkin Park, but they all have the same flow. They all have that it's all the same thing. Right. It's the same flow as Cypress Hill. It's the same flow as Limp Bizkit. It's the same flow as... Less so Linkin Park. Linkin Park was a lot more musical. I've gone back and listened to them in advance of this as well. Uh-huh. Um, a, a lot more like Slipknot, but closer towards like the sort of insane clown posse style of like rapping yeah. and with the metal pieces built in. Whenever I was listening to this song today, what I was thinking about is, you know, there is a time and a place in your life for angry music and you know and that's probably you know in your teens and 20s you can go back as an you know as an older you know adult and listen to that stuff that you used to listen to whenever you were that age and have that little bit of nostalgia for it but you're not i'm not angry like that anymore eventually mike gets his own pepsi you know what i mean right. <laughs> yes so, yeah, he does uh, i don't really have any attachment to this you know i was already in my 30s when this song came out so i was already past my well not officially unofficially past my angry young man phase but yeah this just wasn't what i was listening to this is more for high school age people so definitely and there's a reason that it's targeted at high school age people and targeted is probably the wrong word so in the venn diagram of music that sounds like this there's an entry point between angsty new metal and life is really difficult where I am, etc. And then there's another circle in that Venn diagram, which is like Christian music. <laughs> and POD is a POD is a Christian band. If you Google like Christian new metal bands, there's like nine million of them because that sort of anthemic, punchy, angry, raw sort of societal outcast style of music that this is lends itself well that audience and i think what you end up with is like you walk down the street and somebody goes you know a attractive person uh says hey would you like to do a free personality test and you go sure and then you go in and you do a free personality test and you're there for like six hours and then things start to get bleary and then 
Two months later, you find yourself with an empty bank account holding two tomato soup cans and you're talking about space aliens. <laughs> well, when you go to see like seven bands in a row at a show and a band is that like we're making fun of P.O.D.'s astonishingly terrible lyrics, but they're a tight band and the music is pleasant is not the right word, but the music is listenable. And they put on a good show from everything that I've read suggests that their enthusiasm and energy is what got them a record contract. Is that you're going to have people who are like, hey, this is great. Wow, I really like this band P.O.D. Yeah, they sing about a kid who gets shot in the chest. I don't know. It's pretty cool. And then like four songs in, you're like, I, th- I think this might be a song about Jesus. And then two songs later, you're like, I'm, they're playing it at church. It's a weird thing. I don't know. I'm going to go, you know? Yeah. And it's then, the, again, the, three months later, tomato cans and space yeah. aliens. Well, that's the um, the 1990s methodology. Uh, well, even though it's 2000s, but the 1990s methodology of a spoonful of apple cider vinegar helps the honey go down. You know, it's, everybody was so miserable that that's what was selling. It's like, oh, by the way, Jesus. I think that by, by virtue of the subject matter and the way that they approach like societal issues in these songs, because a lot of them are societal issue songs, is there's a, there's definitely a crossover point that makes it a natural fit. The the other thing that I had with this like style of music, because it lends itself to a younger audience, and you said that P.O.D. is still touring, you know? Yeah, they're still playing out. Like, I can't understand how, like, somebody their age is still writing, like, angry lyrics. It's like, I, I can't even imagine would be like... I can't understand because it tries so hard. I still get all these dead patches in my yard. It's like, what are you pissed off about? Well, okay, so I'm glad you brought that up because after this record and, and maybe the one after it, they, as a lot of bands in the new metal scene sort of did, they expanded out and changed the way that they sound. They do a lot of music now that sounds like sublime. Future residents of the worst song ever. But they do a lot of stuff that's more folky and reggae as I understand it. I haven't gone to check out anything that they have that's new because I'm, you know, I don't want to wake up two months from now empty my bank account to a TV preacher. But All right, so let's wrap up the show with the answer to my trivia question, which was, how many eyes does a bee have? And I said I would answer this in the style of David Attenborough. Uh-huh. So we're talking about just sort of standard issue honeybees, right? Yes. Standard American honeybee, known for flying from flower to flower, have four eyes. Ooh, I thought you had it whenever you said because the answer is five. Five eyes? Yep, yep. they have five it. eyes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yeah, they have five eyes. If you get up real close to one, if you're that brave, they have like three black dots on the top of its head. Those are eyes. And then they have the two big larger eyes that you're, you're used to seeing. So, yeah, bees have five eyes, and the misfits have 20 eyes. <laughs> Mississippi has M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-